All right. Well, we are moving into part seven of a series on the kingdom of God. We've called this series the hidden kingdom because because I believe that Jesus made it clear that while his kingdom was present and available and, and it was good news for us to share in it, that he also made it pretty clear that people miss it. He said it's a narrow way and few find it. Um, and so there's a lot that Jesus talked about, about the, the kingdom not being obvious, it being hidden, and yet it's readily available to all of us. And so as we continue to move into this, we've looked at him as the master and, and what if we positioned our lives like I'm going to be his apprentice, he's going to rule and reign in my life, and I'm going to follow him and learn from him. And then we looked at Jesus' definition of what an apprentice is, and we spent several weeks on that. And so an apprentice, a disciple of Jesus, is someone who follows him, has a real living relationship with him. Someone who submitted their life, inviting him to grow and change me. And so I'm willing to let him do a work in me that changes my life. And that's an ongoing process. And then finally, a key part of being a disciple of Jesus is intending to pass on what I've learned, to participate with him in bringing this kingdom life into the lives of others. And, and I believe for many of us, our, our lives in Christ have even possibly reached a place of stagnation because so much of Christian life is receiving, receiving, receiving. I follow him, I know him, he's feeding me, I'm growing. But a big part of following him and a big part of growing is going with him, being on mission with him. And so that's our framework. And so now we're moving into the rest of this series and we're looking at, if I'm gonna let Jesus be my master and I'm gonna, gonna follow him, let him change me and be on mission with him, what are practical steps of how I walk this out? And so last Sunday, we looked at the importance of prayer and the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives to be aware of the hidden things God's doing in us and around us all the time. And so now today we're going we're gonna to look at a topic that, you know, it's a word that you don't even necessarily see outright in Scripture. So it might not be super obvious to us, but I'm titling today's sermon, Kingdom Curiosity. I believe curiosity is vitally important for us to, to recognize and participate in God's kingdom activity. And so let's pray even this morning that we might have curious minds and curious hearts to hear what God wants to say to us. And so Jesus, we come before you as our master, as our guide. Thank you that you told us that when we see you, we see the Father. And so Father and Son, we want to see you today, this morning. Would you open our eyes to see you through your word? Would you talk to us deep within our hearts would you inspire in us a sense of hunger, a holy curiosity for you and for your kingdom? Holy Spirit, we recognize your unique role to stir us up, to teach us, to guide us, to help us live within the kingdom of our good Father who loves us. And so God, open our eyes to this this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, um, you know, it's, it's hard to describe the circumstances of the last year and not see everything through the lens of the pandemic. And one of the little blessings in the midst of this last year is that me and my family um, dove a little bit more into something that we've always enjoyed, and that is getting outdoors. 
And especially in the summer months and into late summer and early fall, just every chance we had, we were getting outside, we were getting outdoors, and we were experiencing these things together. We were doing things on our own. And so one of my great joys this last year was really discovering the Little River. Has anybody ever spent time on the Little River? Now, I had spent time on the Little River prior to this last year, but we had all this extra time, and it's unbelievable what we discovered. We went out to areas like Tremont that are like right at the mountains, and we discovered these little pull-offs that you could find along this curvy mountain road, and you could park and climb down and hang out near or in the river with this ice-cold water that will wake you up fast. Um, but, but we had a blast doing that. So there was a moment when my wife and I went, just us, and got a few hours together with no kids. And let me tell you, it is good for the soul to substitute the, the chatter of children for the chatter of a riverbed. It was, it was awesome. It restored our soul. We'd go out there with our kids. Savannah came with us at least once, found a great little swimming hole, had a great time out there together with the kiddos. Um, and then another thing I began to discover was the joy of kayaking on the Little River. See, I began to realize the Little River is actually pretty close to my house too. It, it travels, it moves, it eventually joins the Tennessee River. And so some, friend of ours, some friends of ours live on the banks of the Little River, like 10, 15 minutes from our house, and they've allowed us to kayak. In, in their area. They'll even drop us off upriver and let us float down to them. And as someone who has kayaked in water that's not moving, I've discovered I really enjoy kayaking in water that carries you along. It's a lot less work. Um, it appeals to my lazy nature. Um, but here's, here's one of the things I discovered. I loved kayaking the little river. And one of the things I began to do in my free time is I'd, I'd get my my maps app out on my phone, and I'd look for different areas that I could get dropped off or I could park and leave a car. It was like not gonna get towed or whatever and, and find. And so I began to discover all these different places on the Little River, and I'd bring friends along and we'd explore it together. And, and it, was, it was so much fun discovering something that had been here all along. And one of the things I began to realize is I'd kayak the Little River and even began to repeat different sections is I began to realize like there's these little areas where you're going where it branches and I can decide am I going to go to the right or am I going to go to the left? And it's like, well, last time I went to the left, so this time I'm going to go to the right. And I discovered why I didn't go to the right before because it got really shallow and I'm scooting along trying to get my kayak moving across river rocks or I have to pick it up and go a little bit, but discovered all these places. And then you begin to notice all kinds of little things. Like I, I noticed one time, I think with some friends on this particular time, that there was like, I thought it was like litter or something, but I noticed this little like ribbon or cloth that was like tied to the branch of a tree along the shore. And I was like, why would somebody do that? Why would somebody leave that there and like mess, mess this up? And then I began to notice, wait a minute, those are all along the river. And then it began to occur to me, somebody likes going fishing. And they're marking, because it was all the same cloth, it was all the same color, they're marking spots they want to come back to, to fish. I don't know for sure that that's what they're doing, but that's what my curious, creative mind determines. Somebody's marking their favorite little fishing holes along the little river. 
I began to see that this thing that's right here in my backyard available, there was so much to it, so much life to it, so much to discover. And one of the things, even now, if, if you were to, to be looking at my phone with me and I had Google Maps open, you would see four or five hearts. And they're all along the little river and there's spots I've figured out where I can get in and get out and explore the little river for a day. Now, what does that have to do with kingdom curiosity? Everything. Has everything to do with it. Guys, for the next, I don't know, 35, 40 minutes, I want to talk to you about one thing. One thing. That's it. One thing. I think a lot of what, what can happen to us in our, our Christian life, our walk with Jesus, is we've learned lots of one things. And we've accumulated our list of things that, that we know. And if, if you're anything like me in, in a lot of my Christian walk, I'll have that one thing and I'll check it off the list. I got that. I grabbed that one. I got it. It's up there on the shelf now. If I really need it, I can, I can pull it back down and use it. But what I've discovered along the way with Jesus is that some of those one things, there is more life in them, more to discover, more to know, more to understand if we will give it our time, our attention, and our focus. And so at the risk this morning of telling you things you've already heard or boring you with just one thing, my hope is we would have that same mentality that I had on the river, that we would recognize there's all kinds of stuff to explore if we'll give our hearts to kingdom curiosity. And so I want you to join me in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount this morning. We'll look at a couple of other glimpses, places in the scripture along the way, but primarily we're just gonna spend a little bit of time in this section of scripture in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus has gathered, his disciples are near him, and the crowds of people who've been experiencing him, his miracles, the things that he's doing, they've all gathered and they're listening. But his disciples are in close. And in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to pick this up in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 19. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How many of us have heard that before? How many of us have heard that many times before? You could probably get up here and preach a really good sermon. You might be nervous to do that, but you, I bet you could get up here and preach a really good sermon on treasure and where our heart is and let's focus on things that last, that are eternal, instead of focusing on things on this earth that not only consume us, but they will get consumed. They will not last. They will wear out. We've heard this. We know this. And yet I wonder how many of us still find our lives wrapped up in the things that moth destroys, that time wears out, that can be lost or stolen from us. I, I believe for many of us, if we'll allow it, this, this last year, 
could be a wake-up call on this front. The kinds of things we can lose, the kinds of things that can be stolen and lost that we invest a lot of time and a lot of energy in. And so Jesus, he continues this thought as he's highlighting what do we treasure. And he invites us to consider a treasure that is immensely valuable and that is eternal, that'll really last. And he says this, the very next words, verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. Does that seem like it has anything to do with treasure? See, I'm convinced of this. And I think we've done this for years long before social media, but I think social media has encouraged even more of it. We live on sound bites. We live on Bible sound bites. You know, I read through the Proverbs. Many, many practice reading a proverb every day, and I think that's great. There's a lot of wisdom in them. You know, we grab one verse and we make a sound bite out of that verse. Or these things that Jesus said and talked about, you know, it just sort of seems like he's rattling off a list. And for many of us, the Sermon on the Mount is just another list. It's like replace the Ten Commandments with all the list of things he said. But see, I believe Jesus was talking about one thing on the Sermon on the Mount. It's all one thing. And he's inviting us into it to see the connections, to be curious, to discover the life he's inviting us into. That's available to everyone. You know, the Beatitudes is an example. If I just read those as a list of things to try to implement in my life, I'm missing it. He's describing the types of people that are invited, that are welcomed. And so if you're pure in heart, there's a spot for you. If you're poor in spirit, you're not very religiously inclined, there's a spot for you. There's room in his kingdom. Jesus is not moving on to a new thought here. He's still talking about treasure, and he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. And if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. What do I see? See, here, here's the key thought. Jesus is connecting focus, eyesight, beholding what I look to. He's connecting what I look to, to what I treasure, to what defines me at a heart level. What is my life about? What I look to and behold is what I treasure, will define who I am at my core. I, I know this to be true in like little silly, simple ways. Um, I, I've used this, this is now the third time I think in a sermon I've used this example. Once back in Franklin, Tennessee, once here. And I've noticed this to be consistent in my life. So when I was back in Franklin, Tennessee, I used the example of when I decided to get a new truck. And I, I wanted to get a Ford F-150. And when I began to think about getting that truck, what did I, did I inevitably notice everywhere I went when I'm driving around town? F-150s, they're everywhere, all right? Then, you know, a, a few years pass and, and I decide, man, I really want a Jeep. I've always wanted a Jeep. I can't wait to have one. 
And so now I use this example, I think already since we've been in Knoxville, where I bought a Jeep. I was looking for them, I was thinking about them, I was exploring them, and then I finally go get one. And you know what I see everywhere? And I mean, this really is true in Knoxville. Jeeps are everywhere, right? They're absolutely everywhere. I just see them all the time. It's something I was interested in. It's something I was pursuing and I wanted to get a hold of, and I began to see it everywhere. And now, once again, I'm starting to consider the possibility of changing vehicles and been thinking about what I want to get. And recently, my focus has been, I think I want a Toyota Tacoma. One of the ones with like the full four doors and like, I think I want that. I, I hardly ever noticed those anywhere before I started thinking about getting one. You know what I see all the time now? There's plenty of Toyota Tacomas right here in Knoxville. I see them everywhere. Like this is a basic principle of life. What I look for, I see. It fills my vision. It's everywhere. Jesus is saying, what if we did that with his kingdom? What if we did that with what he has made available to us? I've made this life available to you, and it's rich, and it's good, and it's satisfying, and it will last. It won't just last a lifetime. It'll last all lifetimes. It'll last for an eternity. Here's the key thought on treasure. What has your eyes has your heart, and what has your heart defines you. What you treasure directly influences how you see yourself and how you see the world around you. And this is what he gets into next, continuing this thought. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and, does your translation say what mine says? Does yours say money? Does anyone else's say something different? Say that louder. Mammon. Anybody got a Bible that says mammon? Or how many of you grew up, grew up old school like me, where in your early years, King James, or maybe you upgraded New King James, you know, now we're really moving up in the world, New King James. You got some mammon in there. And, you know, I'm really grateful for updated translations. They make it easy for me to, to see things, to understand things. They speak to me at my level. But I just have to tell you, the word money is not a proper substitute for the word mammon. It's just not. It gets us close. It gets us there. But mammon is something specific. Mammon, listen to this, mammon is that which is trusted and treasured. That which is trusted and treasured. Mammon isn't just money. Mammon is the God of riches. It's being personified here. Jesus is saying, you're going to worship something. You're going to worship a God. In fact, you're not just going to worship a God. You're going to serve a God. Because what you worship, treasure, behold, think about, hold in my heart. What I treasure, I worship. What I worship, I serve. And so the question is, 
what do I trust and what do I treasure? And for many of us, listen, this, this couldn't be more relevant than living in the culture that you and I live in. If you think you are exempt from this and you live in the United States of America like I do, you are kidding yourself. Our culture is obsessed with what do we treasure and what do we trust. And it is most often something external around us that we're looking to to feel something, fill something internal within us. We're looking for something we can trust, rely upon. We're looking for something to enjoy that can satisfy, that can make me feel valued. And for many of us, whether we know it or not, we worship and serve the God of Mammon. To help us understand Mammon a little bit more, let's look to Paul. Paul talked about this in his letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. He's, he's talking to the church and he's, he's warning them about something common he's seeing even within the people of God and definitely within the culture around them. And he says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. Is this a big issue to Paul? Uh, yeah, he's saying like through tears, I'm trying to wake you up to this and get your attention. Even through tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Verse 19, their end is destruction where thieves steal and moth and rust destroy. Their end is destruction. And how does he define them? Their God is their belly, mammon. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. What do I crave? What do I desire? What do I have to have? What can I not live without? Sometimes one of the easiest ways to figure out what you can't live without is how you react when you have to go without that thing. When it gets stolen from you. When your plans change, when that thing you were banking on disappeared, how'd you react to that? Are you enslaved to it because you're worshiping it? See, Jesus, Jesus wants our eyes to be open to the fact that what we are focusing on, what we are beholding, what we are seeing, we're pursuing that thing. And that is what we treasure, and it will come to define us. And it defines how we view ourselves, and it defines how we view the world. And the context that comes next, after Jesus says all of these things, the next two big focuses in the Sermon on the Mount, the rest of chapter 6, talks all about the issue of anxiety. Stress, worry. It's that passage where Jesus says, be anxious for nothing. And he tells us, look at the birds as an example. Look at the flowers in the field. But you're seeking, you're striving, you're anxious. Guys, one of the, one of the defining words of our generation is anxious, fearful, doubtful, depressed. 
anxiety. Because something that I strongly desire, something that I'm looking for, it's not being met. Or maybe I think it depends upon me to get that need met. And so I strive and I'm anxious to achieve it, to get it, to take hold of it. It becomes to define us. My heart is unsettled because my heart can't possibly be satisfied with what it's treasuring. Because maybe my God is my belly. See, it's not, it's not about food. It's about what I crave, what I desire. What I'm hungering for. And so Jesus warns us. The next, the next chunk of scripture then moves into how we view the world around us. This is still one continuous thought. Jesus moves from talking about the anxiety that we experience within our own heart and lives to then the way we view people around us. And so moving into chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, go back and read it. What does he talk about? How we judge the world around us. Judge not, lest you be judged. These are a connected thought. I'm already judging myself. I'm already anxious and frustrated and annoyed. And so now, the same way I'm viewing my life, what I've prioritized, I begin to view the world that way, and look at how the world is ripping me off from this. Look at all the injustice I am experiencing because of them over there. And I begin to judge and accuse the world, the people around me. I get frustrated even within the, with the own members in my house because they become an enemy who's robbing me of the thing I want. And how does Jesus tell us to address judging? What do I do? I deal with the plank that's in my own eye before I go to take the speck out of my brother's eye. I am not seeing them clearly or accurately because I'm not even seeing my own life clearly and accurately. Because what has my hold, what has my focus, what has my attention is something that will never measure up to. Instead of allowing what Jesus has for me that will satisfy, that will not disappoint, that will hold fast and steady. Letting that capture my gaze, capture my attention. Is this making sense? Y'all see, y'all see how all this is connected? Even when Jesus addresses the problem, do you notice in the story where he, where he tells us to, to be careful how we judge and to remove the plank before we remove the speck, do you realize he still wants us to get to the place where we help somebody else? Not judging and condemning the world, but when I finally am recognizing how much I'm missing it and I begin to experience some freedom and I begin to see things clearly, then I can see my brother, the scripture says, a fellow sojourner. And I can see clearly to help remove the speck from their eye. Not because they're annoying me, but because, man, that must be hurting them. And so I can see clearly to remove that. What we look at directly affects our heart, which directly affects how I see myself and how I see the world around me. And when I get my eyes right, 
when I'm seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, everything else falls into place. We sang that this morning. You know where that verse is? Right here, Matthew chapter 6. It's right in the middle of all of this stuff we're talking about. So how do we do this? Jesus makes this point crystal clear in a different context with the same message. And so let's go to Luke's gospel for just a minute. Luke chapter 11. In this passage, it's another gathering of a lot of people crowding in that seem curious about Jesus. But along with the big crowd are the faithful, the disciples. And they're all there, they're all together. And in the midst of this crowd who seem curious, Jesus actually calls out their lack of awareness, their lack of seeing. Check this out. This is uh, Luke eleven, twenty nine through 32. When the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, this generation is an evil generation. So he's talking about the same thing. The God of mammon that leads to destruction. What Paul talks about, destruction. This generation, it's an evil generation. Why? It seeks for a sign. I've decided what I need, and I'm looking for somebody to meet that need. Maybe Jesus will measure up and meet that thing I'm looking for. Many of us are seeking Jesus on our terms while we're still worshiping our thing instead of finding him on his terms and worshiping him for who he is. And so Jesus says they're just looking for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Verse 30, for as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Verse 31, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. What is he talking about? The queen of the south. Let's keep reading. Let's pay attention. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold. That's what we really look at, what we behold. And he says, behold, something greater than Solomon is right here in front of you. Verse 32, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus says, I'll give you something to look at and consider. Solomon. No coincidence at all, was both the wisest and richest to ever live. And it was so profound, his wisdom and his lifestyle was so profound that it caused the queen of Sheba at great cost of time and at great expense from her treasury to come and seek him out and bring gifts to discover if his, his wisdom was legit or not. And she determined it absolutely is. It's worth it. And Jesus says, the wisdom that Solomon has, the wisest man who ever lived, the richest man who ever lived, it pales in comparison to what I have for you. So will you behold me and my wisdom? Then he points to the story of Jonah. 
in this, this evil city called Nineveh that God said, I'm going to destroy you because the way that you live is destructive. And Jonah comes with a kind of wisdom. It's a warning. Jonah comes with a warning and says, here's the way that way of life is leading for you. You're going to be destroyed and wiped out. And they heard it and repented. They changed. They changed their focus. They changed what they were living for. They repented and it brought change. And Jesus says, there's someone greater than Jonah standing here before you. Jesus is saying at the simplest level, I'm bringing you the ultimate warning and the ultimate wisdom. Will you behold it? Will you see it? Or will you keep living with your tunnel vision, missing what's right in front of you, missing the wisdom of God, the life that's available? Both warning and wisdom. And then what does he say? This is almost an exact quote from what we read in Matthew 6, 22 and 23. And yet Jesus is telling it in a different setting, in a different context. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. When the light shows up in the midst of darkness, what do I do with it? I use it. I keep it out. I keep it present. I keep it available. In fact, I put it at a central place, not just because I want to stare at the light, but because the light will help me see everything else clearly. Jesus has given himself as a light, and he says, why would you tuck me away in the corner? Make me central. See me. Behold me and see everything else by my light. Verse 34, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. When it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your body is full of light, have no part in dark. It will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Jesus is repeating this theme. And do you know why we repeat things? Because they're important. Because they ought to be remembered and not forgotten. And so Jesus is repeating this theme. What lights you up? What gives you direction? Have you made something in your life a light, a lamp, a focus that is actually no light at all? It's dark. And it's blinding you to how to truly walk, to truly live, how to see yourself accurately, how to see the world around you accurately. What lights your way? See, let's go back to Paul. When he warned them to be careful of falling into the same trap that others had fallen into, whose, whose eyes were focused on the wrong thing. In that same context, Paul writes these words that many of us are familiar with. Just the few verses before, Philippians 3, 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, 
but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Jesus is available to me. I have him already, but I'm not resting on my laurels. I press into him and all he has for me. Verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what my eyes are fixed upon. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Paul's not talking to baby Christians to help get their eyesight right. He's saying, hey, mature, established believer, be careful. Be careful what you're beholding. Keep your eyes set where they're meant to be set. Hold on, stay focused. Those who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. When you bring the light in, he'll let you see the places of darkness to avoid. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. He says, pay attention to those who've gone before, who followed Christ. Pay attention to his apprentices. Pay attention to his disciples. They'll show you how to do this thing he's calling us to. And so if we've had one main point this morning, that there is a hidden kingdom available, and will we focus our eyes on it, I want to now take a couple of minutes as we wrap things up and talk about our one point of application. How can I do this? How can I set my focus on him? How can I have that kingdom curiosity that keeps my eyes on the prize, that keeps my eyes on the goal? Well, we do what Paul said. We look to those who followed him. We look to those who kept their eyes on him. And so we're going to move from the Sermon on the Mount to the Sermon by the Sea. And the Sermon by the Sea, this is found in both Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, and Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13. We have again Jesus' disciples nearby. We have again the crowds of people coming near him. And now instead of being up on a mountaintop, he's in a boat floating just offshore while everybody gathers on the shoreline to lean in and hear what he has to say. And here is his approach in that setting and in most of his settings communicating with people. Matthew summarizes it in Matthew 13, verses 34 through 36. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into a house, and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Here's the whole deal right here. Jesus shows up speaking something that is both meant to make things clear and meant to inspire curiosity. Jesus would tell stories that you could remember, 
that you could grab hold of. And within them was hidden all kinds of truth to be revealed. And most of these stories in public, Jesus never explained the meaning behind them in public. One, one of the first times my eyes was, op- was open to this, I was in Nashville at a conference um, in Bridgestone Arena, and Francis Chan's there speaking. And he gets up, and I love the way he did it, because he just was like, here's what Jesus did. He got on a boat, and there were crowds by the shore. And he said to them a story. There's a farmer, and he went out to sow. He threw seeds on the path. He threw seeds on rocky ground. He threw seeds on thorny ground. He threw seeds on good soil. Most of it didn't grow. Some of it didn't produce fruit. If you get it, you get it. That's what he did. I paraphrased slightly. He said, let him who has ears, let him hear. If you get it, you get it. And then he walked away. When I hold my Bible, I see him explaining what the parable meant. He did not explain it in the moment to the crowd. He threw out a story that held within it hidden kingdom wisdom, life wisdom, stuff that would change us. And he threw it out there hoping to inspire holy curiosity. He said a lot of people are going to miss it. They're not going to see it. They're not going to get it. The only thing that's going to set apart the crowd from my disciples is my disciples are curious. They will come seek me out to find the answer. And so Jesus would share these hidden kingdom things and those who had really set their hearts to know and follow him would seek him out and go, hey, uh, what? Like, pay attention to disciples. They didn't ask brilliant questions. (laughs) They stuck with the basics. Who, what, where, when, why, like, what you got in elementary school, you can use that when you're trying to see Jesus. The brilliance was in the answers he had, not in the questions they asked. Their only brilliance was their curiosity. I'm going to go seek this out. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to do this quickly. Just looking at Mark's gospel, you can do this in both. Just looking at Mark's gospel, I want to show you the things between the parables. All right? I want you to see this, and we'll wrap up with this this morning. So Mark 4 starts out. It explains the setting. I'll read it quickly. Mark 4, 1 and 2. Again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea. A very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them. And then it goes on and describes what I just said, the parable of the soils. I mean, he's got a captive audience. Like, if you want to start a movement and grow something, and you got a captive audience, man, use it. And instead, Jesus did kind of what they, in the Old Testament, he told Gideon to do. we got to weed some people out. <laughs> Let the ones who are really hungry come looking for food. And so he, he tells the parable of the soils. So, The parable wraps up. He's removed from the people now, verse 10 through 13. And when he was alone, when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, 
to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Jesus says, if you're not curious about this, how would you ever discover this and this and this and this? Does the life that's available to me, does it just bounce right off of me? Is it of no particular significance? In fact, guys, I think some of the very places where maybe we get stuck with Jesus. God, what are you doing here? What's going on here? Why is this happening? What are you saying? The enemy, the enemy would love to use that as an opportunity to keep us from discovering truth. But those very places where we're unsure, where we don't understand, places where we're stuck, if we'll come to him with kingdom curiosity and say, Jesus, what is happening there? What gives? What are you saying? What are you doing? What's going on here? That, that way of thinking, that mentality, stay curious, seek answers. Then he explains the parable of the soils. He gives them some answers. Here's what's going on here. And then after he gives them the answers, he says this. More about the lamp. Verse 21. And Jesus said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest. The only reason to hide something is so that it can be discovered. Not because I want to keep it from you. There's joy in discovering. Nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. He says, I'm playing hide and seek, and I hope you'll find me. You know, Jesus said things like, the kingdom of God is for little children, faith like a child. Has anybody ever played peekaboo with a really young kid? If you've ever played peekaboo with some little newborn, well, not little newborn, but like not long after newborn, right? Like it's one of the earliest games you can play. And have you ever noticed the delight on a child's face every time it's peekaboo? And they're, I mean, they're fascinated. I promise you, you play peekaboo with a little kid, and I guarantee you, you will be bored long before they are worn out with the game. They're fascinated with it. Where did you go? Where could you be? Are, are, did you leave the room? What's going on? Wait a minute. Oh, there you are. And they're delighted. Their face lights up. They laugh. They giggle. It's like the most fun thing ever to discover you once again. The point of peekaboo is the joy in discovery. And Jesus said, that's what my kingdom is like. I'm playing hide and seek with you guys, and you think I've abandoned you, I've left you, you're hopeless, I'm not there, life's upside down. And he's saying, I'm just hiding. You going to come find me? 
you're going to be delighted when you do. You're going to see me again, but you're going to see me in a way you never have before. It's new every time. It's like, where's Waldo? Y'all ever read through a Where's Waldo book? Like, oh my gosh, like, this whole page. And, but like, when, when you were a kid, like, it was a blast. Like, I could spend a lot of time working my way through a Where's Waldo book, looking for that one little hidden guy in the crowd. And what's funny is, as you looked at the picture and you do discover Waldo, you're seeing the whole rest of the crowd in way more detail than you would have if you weren't looking for him. As opposed to just this mass on the picture. There's so much to discover. Will we look? Will we see? One of the things that changed my life and how I view the life of Jesus, his parables specifically, but really all that he was talking about, I'm forever indebted to Warren Wearsby. If you don't remember anything I've said this morning, remember this and use it. Warren Wearsby had a way of looking at the parables of Jesus, and he described it like this. He said, Jesus' parables are a picture, a mirror, and a window. They're a picture, a mirror, and a window. It's a picture. Will I slow down? And, and get drawn in to the glorious artwork that he has on display? Will I get drawn into the picture? Will I see the story? Will I pick up all the details? Will I really be absorbed in it? Will I see the story that he's telling? And then he says, it's, it's like a mirror. In other words, when I, when I look at one of the things Jesus is saying, when I look at his parable, what, what's he telling me about myself? What he's, he's showing me about what's going on in here. And I'll begin to see things he's, he's trying to highlight to me, point out to me in my life that I can discover about myself. And so it's like a mirror in that way. It's a way of reflecting on who I am, where I'm at. And then he said it's like a window. It's a whole new way of seeing what God is doing out in the world around us. What's happening in the life of my spouse? my kid. See, maybe the thing Jesus is trying to open my eyes to is not just in here, it's out there. He's helping me see out the window what he's doing out in his big world, where his kingdom is operating in ways that I don't typically see and I don't typically understand. But when I I come to Jesus and his life and his words, and I behold them, I discover him what he's saying, what he's doing in my heart, what he's doing in the world around me. And so Mark kind of wraps up the thought like this, verses 33 and 34. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Mark summarize, Matthew summarizes it like this. After Jesus spent all this time with the disciples, telling these parables, explaining, answering their questions, having dialogue with them, he says these words, Matthew 13, verses 51 and 52. He says, have you understood all these things? 
And they said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe, every apprentice who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his, what's the word? Treasure. What is new and what is old. When we look to him and behold him with kingdom curiosity, when we give him our eyes, when we let him light up our life, it changes our heart because it changes what we treasure. And we will discover a life in Jesus that is rich and it is full and there are old things that I've got. I got a hold of them. I spent time with the master and he explained to me what that was all about and I now treasure that experience, that discovery but there's always something new he gives me things old, he gives me things new and you know what this apprentice then does with those things, they don't just treasure them, they bring them out to bless a world that is empty empty and hungry and they're tired of going to mammon that doesn't satisfy and if the people of God would begin to truly treasure the riches that we have guys it wouldn't just change our life it would change the world around us because we would have something to draw on to offer the hungry and the lost and the hurting we would have treasure more than enough to share is Jesus' hidden kingdom. That is the life that is available to us if we will live and develop a kingdom curiosity. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for who you are, for the life that is available in you. And God, my, my prayer this morning is simple. It's for me, it's for my friends here. God, that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness. We would hunger and thirst for your kingdom. That our eyes would behold the light that is the only true light. God, that we would discover you over and over and over again. God, may we live with kingdom curiosity, with eyes for you and you alone. We need that. We look to you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray this morning.